This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi there, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang, and I will be your host for this episode. As you may have read from the episode's title, this is part one of my conversation with Roy Sengupta. I had a great conversation with Roy, and our conversation went about two hours. Thus, our conversation was divided into two parts, with each part covering a specific topic of the conversation. In this first part, Roy and I discussed the differences between the Canadian and American law school experiences, as well as Roy's outstanding achievements over the past few years. Stay tuned for part two by following us on our social media platforms and website. For now, I hope you will enjoy part one of my conversation with Roy Sengupta. My guest for today is Roy Sengupta, law clerk in the litigation department at the New York office of Debevoise and Plimpton. In 2016, Roy graduated with high distinction from Carleton University with a Bachelor of Humanities. In 2019, Roy graduated cum laude from Harvard Law School. During his time at Harvard Law School, Roy was an article editor for the Harvard International Law Journal and acted as a mediator with the Harvard Mediation Program. In only his early 20s, Roy has published extensively on the field of sustainable development and infrastructure, including as primary author of a chapter in the book Designing a Sustainable Financial System, Development Goals, and Socio-Ecological Responsibility. Roy has also served as a research assistant for Professors Maya Steinitz and James Saltzman. For Professor Steinitz, Roy assisted with the research and preparation of legislative testimony regarding third-party litigation financing legislation in the New York Senate. For Professor Saltzman, Roy assisted in the editing of a textbook on international environmental law. Harvard-trained, knowledgeable in the world of international law, Roy is my guest for today. Roy, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's go back to the very beginning, which isn't that long ago, just a few years ago. When did you first want to go to law school? And what inspired you to go pursue the legal profession? What inspired me to go to law school? Well, I, I guess that I, I certainly, when I started out uh, in, in Carleton University, uh, I, I've been very active in politics for a long time. And I suppose that was sort of my initial inclination was that I would become like sort of a political staffer or something along those lines. Uh, that, and, I, and I kind of transitioned to law and the legislative process, but I, I think that with the interest in politics, I always sort of had that interest in the sort of legislative process, lawmaking, that sort of thing. Uh, and when I, I sort of went into Carleton University, I, I sort of came to sort of, I sort of joined the Law Society there. Uh, undergraduate mooting actually, I think, had a big role in, in sort of like uh, influencing me to sort of say, you know, law, law could really be for me. Undergraduate mooting, if, if you don't know, is, uh, is basically a mock appellate case, basically. And, and 
And so with, uh, as a mock appellate case, you basically pretend to argue it. You have, you have two sides and, and you pretend to argue the, the appellant or the respondent. And, and, uh, and that sort of argumentation, I, I found that I very much enjoyed. And, uh, and, and that was, I think, a big influence for me in, in terms of going to law school. And I, I think as well, but more broadly, it was, I, I, I think, a stock taking of, of sort of the skills I had, the things that I enjoyed. I, I enjoyed public speaking. I enjoyed writing. I enjoyed, uh, you know, research. Actually, I did enjoy research. I always, always enjoyed research in terms of like researching my essays and what have you. And, uh, and you know, the detail and nuance of, of these sorts of things. And, and I felt that law was sort of a career that uh, allowed me to use those skills. And so that I think is 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 the the broader reason why I, I think I decided to go to law school. And you mentioned undergraduate mooting with Carlton University. Me being one of your former teammates, yes. uh, all those years ago, five years ago. Let me tell you, dear listeners and dear viewers, that Carlton's moot team is a team that is quite feared amongst undergraduate level mooting teams. You know, we've got not just the sheer numbers, but also the sheer talent as well. I mean, I remember back when you were still mooting at, at Carlton, you had quite a number of quarterfinals and semifinal performances against a competition of about, I think, almost 200 teams or something like that. I could be, could oh, yeah. be exaggerating. I could be getting, getting my numbers a bit off on that, but mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. some crazy high number of, of, of teams. Oh, yes. But you were, you were regularly hitting mm-hmm. the, the quarterfinals and semifinals, and I, and I had the pleasure of, of, of uh, practicing with you Mm-hmm. Um, back in my first year <laughs> undergrad at Carlton. Um, so yeah, so Carlton's moot team is certainly a strong, mm-hmm. strong moot team. And yes. how did you make such consistently strong performances at these moot competitions? How, do you, mm-hmm. how did you perform such strongly at mm-hmm. Carlton's Capital Cup and at the Osgood Cup? You know, I mean, we, we, we've pretty consistently had a lot of quarterfinal performances. Uh, uh, I know me and my team, it was a little bit frustrated that we never were able to really push through and really, really take home uh, any of the competitions. But we did actually get some speaker awards as well. And so that was a, a nice little prize as well that we were sometimes able to finish in the top 10 of speakers and go online like that. But uh, certainly, you know, we were, I, I think, very consistently, I, I, I think, even if we were not specialists in those final rounds. I think in those final rounds where your office sort of like narrowly kind of like had, had the scenes to go against it. But I think so in the preliminary rounds on the first day, I think you're right. I, I think we really were able to sort of get it down how you, and that's a huge challenge. You're right. You're talking about in that 200 team round, how do you get to the final 16, final eight teams uh, that actually makes it to that knockout stage? And I, I think that we certainly did gain a mastery of how to do that. And I, I think it was really, I, I think, a, a combination of, of I, I think, really sort of planning out the argument. Uh, I think really bringing something to the table in terms of the argument. I, I think that when you're talking about, you know, distinguishing yourself and, and, and in those competitions as well, it's, it's about the judges giving you a high enough score on average that you got the average score needed to make it through to the competitive rounds. And so you could have a, a, a very good performance. You could, you could be, let's say, number 30 of 200 teams, and you wouldn't be making it to the next day. 
Uh, and so, you know, that was something that we always bore in mind was that there had to be really an extra step there in order to get to that knockout stage. And, and, and for us, I think that extra step often was ensuring that we brought something to the table in terms of what our advocacy was, was presenting in terms of like novel argumentation. If you just run through the standard argumentation well, you may get to number 30 of 200 teams but you may not make it to the knockout stages. You, you have to have something that I really think really sticks out in the judge's mind uh, enough that they, they feel willing to, to really give a very high score because it has to be more than just a high score. It has to be a very high score to get to the, to the next round. And so it is a chancy thing. It is, it is a challenging thing. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we were very fortunate, and, and, and I, I think, you know, to be able to, and we had a lot of Carlton teams as well, just sort of figured out the formula for getting to the knockout rounds each and every time. And, you know, but it's a very chancy thing, and, but it really is sort of comes down to you and your teammates sort of really have to think about what is it special that we're bringing to the table because just doing the, the normal argumentation, the obvious arguments, and doing that well won't be enough to get you to the competitive round. You've got to take some risks with it. And I think that's what, what me and my teammate always did was calculated risks we took in how we argued things. And we did that competently. We did that in an organized fashion in terms of understanding who took what argument, how is it going to be broken down. And, and I think as well, answering the judge's questions is, is key as well, like taking the risk on, on the argument and then answering the questions that you will inevitably get on that risky argument, answering them competently and well. And that means answering the questions directly, which I think is something that a lot of people miss. I mean, if, if you really just try and spin it, uh, you know, you, you won't necessarily always get the, the top scores. But if you really answer the questions directly, you really grapple with the challenging argument then I think you'll stick out enough to hopefully make it to the competitive round because it's a knockout round. And what sticks out to me is that most of the people, most of our teammates on the Carlton team, most of us all went to law school or are in law school. Yes. So either in Canada, the U.S., or the U.K. Yes. So that's saying a lot about just the talent pool that we had back then. Absolutely. Um, And I would assume that it's still a similar level of talent mm-hmm. now nowadays Absolutely. with Carlton I mean it's been a long time since since I've mm-hmm. stepped foot in Carlton and mm-hmm. also a long time since you stepped foot in Carlton as well but mm-hmm. but it's it's a testament to just how competitive the whole the whole competition can be even mm-hmm. at the undergraduate level let alone at the law school level I mean uh, I'm not sure if you had any mooting experiences maybe in at Harvard that you may have Mm-hmm. Uh, then you may have have had that compared to the Carlton experience. You know, the funny thing is is that uh, mooting is a bit more of a Canadian thing. I've actually found than 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 it, it was not as prevalent at Harvard. There was certainly things that were similar to mooting. Uh, we did do you you had the Ames competition, for instance, which was an in-house. Competition. Uh, and, and we didn't make the knockout rounds in that, me and my teammate. But uh, that was an in-house competition. And so you only compete against other Harvard students. And so the, this kind of intercollegiate mooting that we sort of 
so in Canada, and that you do see the law school level in Canada a lot, and, and that's something people should be clear about. If you're going to Canadian law school, there's a ton of this, and, and there's often also far more creative moots than you'll find in undergrad. In undergrad, you have the, the really standardized, you know, appell, arguing an appellate case mood, and that's pretty much what's available in terms of undergraduate. I think it's a great introduction. I think it's really all you need in undergraduate, but I think that once you hit law school, you, you learn about all kinds of other aspects of law. So you have a Lansdowne like negotiations and, uh, and you know, more case type competitions, but a really much more creative moots than you may necessarily get in your undergraduate, you'll get in Canadian law school. And a much wider diversity of things, and so that will play to the strengths of an individual person much better. But uh, in America, you know, there is something called mock trial, uh, which is much less prevalent than much less prevalent in Canada than it is there. Uh, that is a trial level mooting. Uh, I, I did something akin to that with a trial advocacy workshop at Harvard Law School, uh, which was just fantastic, actually. And, and, and uh, you know, really, uh, you know, in terms of like honing your trial level skills and trial and appellate, are, of course, vastly different practices in terms of the need to establish a fact record at trial and what have you, whereas in, in appellate work at the end of the day, you're dealing with an established fact record. And, and, uh, and so mock trial is more prevalent there, particularly at the undergraduate level, that they, they do mock trial rather than mooting. Uh, and, uh, and as you get into law school, it, it is less prevalent. And I, I think there's, there's a, a few reasons for that. I mean, Ames is, of course, a spectacular competition, and, and Harvard Law School being as large a law school as it is, you know, you do get really high quality advocacy. Then I remember we, we'd watch, actually, Ames competitions when we trained, because there is a very high standard of advocacy there. But that being said, that kind of intercollegiate mooting is, is, is not as present there. Uh, there. There is some, but it's much smaller. In, in fact, actually, in the international arbitration, uh, sphere. You have this in Canada too. In the international arbitration sphere, there's more participation by American law schools like WTO moots, uh, investment arbitration, it's what have you. In terms of domestic mooting, it's less, I'd, I'd say. There is some mock trial still at the law school level, uh, but small numbers of people. Uh, and, you know, I, I think part of the reason for that is, I think, A, the sheer number of law schools involved in, in the U.S. makes it organizationally, I, I think, close to impossible to really organize events like that because you have like 200 law schools in the country there. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I, and I guess it never really occurred to people to do it state by state because there's a lot of differences between the law schools and their embassies as well, and so it's harder to really, really organize those kinds of intercollegiate experiences, which I think is, is more prevalent in Canada, generally speaking, like beyond just mooting, just the general intercollegiate experience between law schools in Canada, particularly within provinces, so particularly within the province of Ontario, let's say, is much more prevalent. I mean, Harvard Law School did have relations with other law schools, absolutely, particularly with the Yale Law School, uh, because they are quite close by. We'd have a basketball game every year with them, what have you. And, uh, but that kind of collegiality is, is less in America because uh, the legal profession, you know, is, is a bit more stratified there at times. Uh, it's, uh, 
and and the diversity of law schools just makes it a challenge i think and, and so I, th I think that's a big part of the reason why you know the main mooting at harvard is a, is a within the school competition uh and that you don't have as much uh intercollegiate competition as as you would in, in that's actually very, very interesting. I, I never would have thought that the U.S. didn't have as much as, of, of an intercollegiate mooting culture as the Canadians do. Mm -hmm. um, you were mentioning arbitration moots. To me, one of the first moots that comes to mind is the VIS moot, of course, mm -hmm. um, right. which, is, which yeah. is the moot that U Ottawa has done quite well. And I think we've won twice or three right. times. Right. Probably the yeah. only law school in the world that has won that many times i could be wrong but people but might want to want to verify that but it's still it's it's still quite impressive to win it even once let alone more than once mm -hmm. but yeah the, the intercollegiate part the lack of the culture in mm -hmm. the u.s surprises me quite a lot mm -hmm. uh, especially given that you would expect from the number of law schools there mm -hmm. that they would have some more structuralized form of bracket system, similar right. to how they would have treated the NCAA Div right. One or Div Two or something like that, right? right? So mm -hmm. that's actually quite interesting, and it's actually an idea that you raise, and and I think that that's a big part of the problem is is how would you structure a competition like that domestically in, in the U.S. I, I think, of course, there's this traditional distinction of the T14 world in the US and that would make the most sense probably in terms of a comparable integrated competition to what you're seeing in, in, in Canada, particularly in the province of Ontario, but even in Canada generally, where you're having, let's say, max like 20 schools or so. And so 14 schools would be a good starting point in that regard. It is a point of curiosity for me why that hasn't happened yet, even if you don't necessarily want to compete with all 200 law schools why we wouldn't necessarily compete with the T14. Uh, I think there's a big part of that is, is, is just probably some of the controversy it might cause, the, the, the idea of these exclusive competitions, the idea that T14 is not an official distinction. Uh, and, and, and I think that would probably be the issue with sort of like an NCAA type format, which, which, which when you mention it at first glance makes good sense given the structure of things there. But nonetheless would represent a formalization of a system which is not actually a formal system. And it, it is simply a system that law students recognize, that law schools, in fact, recognize. If, if you're talking about how the administration of, of law schools reacts to each other, see with OCIs, for instance, or what have you, the T14 takes its marker or, or like the grading changes that happen during coronavirus. The T14 takes its mark from other T14 schools. It, it, it's not necessarily going to take its mark from schools outside of the T14 because frankly, the priorities and, and types of jobs they're looking at are, are often quite different. That's not to say you can't get big work from a T14 school. You certainly can, but talk about the majority of students, it's going to look different. And and, and, and so for that reason, even though it, it pretty much is an institutionalized the distinction, there is, I think, a concern about formalizing the distinction, which I think has absolutely restricted intercollegiate uh, uh, interaction of all kinds, not just meeting. 
really also more collaborative interactions as well. And uh, and I think that as well with with the vis mooting and, and what have you, absolutely. There's a presence at Harvard there as well, and Harvard has had some good performances there too. And you know, but I think it, it is less prevalent for sure than than at a school like you are. Right? It, it is less prevalent. And one thing that I also realized about the Canadian law school culture versus the American law school culture is the issue of rankings. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., it's a huge, huge deal. Yeah. As you said, the T14 isn't exactly a formal designation, yes. but people treat it as if it is yes. a formal designation. And the rankings are huge. Some of it is arbitrary, but a mm-hmm. lot of it is surprisingly useful for determining whether you're employable, mm-hmm. not only in terms of just what law firms or legal organizations are looking at your resume or, or, or your transcripts, but just by the fact of the resources that each of those law schools are given. For example, you went to Harvard, you have some of the best resources in the country, whereas if you went to a much lower ranking law school, chances are you won't have as good of a resource in terms of teaching, research, or just the practical or learning skills that you would have have had at a, a higher T14 or even an Ivy League law right. school. And that's something that, that, that really struck to me because here in Canada, mm-hmm. yeah, no. we have the McLean's rankings, but yeah. nobody really cares about that. And those haven't been released in some time as well. Exactly. Yeah. Here in Canada, it's, it's every, we all say that there are good law schools and there are great law schools, but the difference yeah. is, is so small, it's not even mm-hmm. calculable. As long as you no. come from a law school here in Canada, you're mm-hmm. pretty much employable. Well, not mm-hmm. automatically, but it's not like you're going to be, oh, you, you go to a terrible law school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not right. picking you, your resume up anytime soon. Yeah. And well, there's some controversy in Canada too with the expansion of law schools as, as well, and 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 you know some law schools, such as for example, you know the opening of Ryerson Law School, and I mean, certainly for some people, there was an argument being made that you risked with having three law schools in Toronto, Osgood, U of T, and now Ryerson, that you risked creating that kind of American system because you are oversaturating a particular market with multiple law schools, and that is actually. There's some validity to that concern regarding the risk, because that is part of the thing you see in the U.S. A city like Boston, a city like New York, a city like Atlanta, Houston, wherever kind of thing, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, you know, you, you have huge amounts of law schools in, in those cities. We're talking five, six in a major city at least. You could have seven, eight in a major city. Talking about New York City, God knows, I mean, if, it depends on how, how far you want to count it, but how far you want to go into the outer boroughs or the suburbs, but there's a, there's a huge amount of law schools in New York City. Uh, and and, 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 and put, so, you know, I, I think the Canadian system has a, a regional system, which I, I think is being undermined to some extent now in, in Ontario with the opening of so many law schools. But I, I, I think that traditionally it's been a regional system whereby you have one, Toronto being the exception because it is such a large city, it has two, uh, but generally speaking, you have one law school per city. Uh, you have, or Montreal also kind of being a such a good, but you guys have French law school and, and McGill, the English law school, but generally speaking, you have one law school per city, 
uh, and you have only a, a few law schools per province. Uh, and so th th there's a variety of reasons why I, I think it hasn't come to the same effect in Canada. I, I, I think that, I, I think that certainly with the American ranking system, it's not necessarily, I, I'd say that there's vast, that there certainly is a resource difference. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that simply because people go to law ranking schools, they're under-resourced educationally. Per se, I, I, I think that, in fact, you know, certainly in, in low-ranked law schools, in some respects, you know, I've, I've seen very good educational standards at, at, at those schools. Uh, but it, at the end of the day, it is the job outcome that I think drives drives the rankings by far the most. It is this idea of, by and large, and again, this is not to say it's hundred percent true because there are absolutely students from outside the T14 who do go into but it's much harder for them to do so. And, you know, it, it is certainly a, a situation whereby, you know, the, the majority of students at a T14 uh, are, are looking at a big world job, and the majority of students at a non-T14 tend not to be, particularly the lower down you go. Uh, and that, I think, is really, you know, driven at the end of the day, probably by, you know, clients of law firms, clients of the, of the large, at the end of the day, they're going to be driven by their clients and, and what their clients want and feel like they need from the attorneys in particular firm. And, you know, I, I think it's certainly the case that, you know, when you're talking about a system that has 200 different that are in some cases privately owned or part of privately owned institutions, which is a big difference between Canada because Canada, these are all publicly owned institutions which are regulated by the ministry, uh, which is a lot harder to do in the US, not to mention we have 50 states in the US. Uh, God knows what each of their ministries are doing. Uh, you know, you have private institutions that are frankly loosely regulated and there's a, a feeling that you can't always trust every institution and, and the educational program that it's providing, as well as the fact that in Canada, you haven't had these law schools that really cater to the lowest end of the statistical range. Uh, again, a, a concern with the expansion of law schools in Canada has been that you will start to get these schools. And again, there's an argument to be made that you know Canada is changing to some extent the system but traditionally you have not had you know that systematic undercutting of standards by certain law schools in Canada and I think still you, you do not deliberately have that but I think in the US you probably deliberately have that with some schools and you know it, it, it's uh, and so I think that's a big thing is, is that you had law schools where Frankly, you can't hire from some law schools because they don't pass the bar exam. That's the bottom line. If you can't get a lawyer who passes the bar exam, you don't really have anything in terms of, I mean, because that person cannot enter the profession. Uh, and the bar exam is the barrier because, of course, as we might get into there, we don't have art in the US. Uh, and, and, and so if you're talking about a school, and we've, we've had schools in the US at the, at the very bottom of the rankings, uh, and this is part of the problem, it's not the entire problem, because there's many low-end law schools, again, that do have good bar, bar passage rates, but 
at the bottom of the rankings, you've had law schools that have like 30, 40% of their people passing the bar or like less than half their people passing the bar. So if you hire someone from that school, chances are they won't pass the bar on their first go. And that's really no good uh, for most employees. And, and so, you know, that is because they were undercutting the standards admissions-wise probably. And, uh, but I think as well, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of vectors to this sort of analysis of, of, of the U.S. system. And, and it's something that I've thought about quite a bit, you know, being, being at Harvard Law School and what have you. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there were well-meaning intentions behind some of the undercutting of the standards that did take place. I, I think it had a bad outcome in the end. I, I think it was negative, but the intention that some people have, and then I, I choose to believe that many people were distinguished educators who genuinely believe that they were opening the legal profession to individuals who had not had access to it before. And, and, and to individuals for reasons of social class, for reasons of historic discrimination because of race and, and what have you, did not have that access. And the, the question is, you know, how, how best do we serve those people and give them access to the, to the profession? Uh, is the T14 really serving them that well? Probably not. Uh, and, so there are people who, you know, had potential, but who had issues in terms of, you know, prior educational experience, being able to write the LSAT, being able to access the materials to write the LSAT, having the time to write the LSAT, uh, having the time to get a good GPA, having the materials to get a good GPA at, at their college. And, uh, and, and so, you know, those are, are challenging issues. The solution, I think, was never to set them up in such a way that you, you, you put them into debt, $200,000 American in debt, and then they don't pass the bar exam and they don't have access to a job. You've not done them any favors doing that. You've just made their position far worse. And, and, and so, and 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 certainly there's a there's a there's, there's a sort of grifting that can come from that because they perceive and particularly underprivileged communities they perceive the professions as you know a path out of sort of the struggles that they may be facing and then to take that and and, and then promise something that wasn't delivered was not a not a good thing i think but you know i i, I think by the same token you know i i think particularly you know and this is part of the challenge i think law schools face now I think particularly some of the issues that, that we're having is, you know, I, I, I think, for instance, when I, when I think back to my time at Harvard Law School, you know, I, and this is something that I, I spoke about consistently, was, was the idea when I was, I, I, I did some stuff on student government with regards to, you know, at the end of the day, is there a degree of racial diversity at Harvard Law School? I think there is now. I think there is a degree of racial diversity. Uh, it can always be improved, but I don't think necessarily that we're, you know, white school. And, and uh, you know, but I think that when it comes to social class, it remains the issue, I think. And, you know, you, you can have good racial diversity, but still not be open to, to the people of lower social classes. And I, I think that continues to be the case at, at places across the team that, and, and particularly in the Ivy League, but across the team, team is, 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 you know, how do you create accessibility for people from lower social status and, and, and who may have had tougher life experiences to really 
come to these sorts of schools. And it's not to say there's, there's not efforts in place, but the fact of the matter is that the, the measurements that, that you engage in, and that's part of the reason why the GRE is now allowed at Harvard, but the, the, the part of the reason that the measurements you engage in, the LSAT, the GPA, and I'm not saying that we should do away with those entirely. I think they're important. I think that we see with the bar exam results that they are important and we have an obligation to ensure that you know, we're not making false promises to people that simply because you come to X and Y law school or get X and Y law degree that, that that's going to necessarily transform your life if it's not. But, you know, I, I think by the same token, you know, it is certainly, you know, I, I knew very few people who they say that, and I'm, I'm even misquoting this, but there was a statistic out that said something like 80% of, of Harvard Law School's population came from the top 20% of, of uh, the income brackets, uh, the income bracket in, in America, basically. And so for that, you know, and so I think it's a very difficult issue because I think that you have to select somehow. Uh, in order to get how, how to get into these schools, but I, th I think that you also, I think, have to, and and affirmative action, I think, has had positive impacts uh, in in terms of like uh, increasing racial diversity. But I think that how do we start uh, accounting for social class and and and, and life experiences in, in in those vectors? It's a harder question, and and I think that you know it's certainly something that we have to grapple with, particularly as you know, we, we come to realize that these low-ranked schools in America have not fulfilled their function or their promises in the way that we would hope. One thing that will not change for the foreseeable future, if ever, will be the competition to get into law school, whether yes. you're going to Canada, the U.S., or the U.K. Mm -hmm. And that kind of competition is going to be extremely fierce regardless of the year that you apply, regardless of the generation that you apply. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this competition is also determined by the, like, as you said, the life experiences that you've had. And from what I've understood, Roy, you yourself have had a lot of, of, of experiences as well, not just in terms of mooting and legal advocacy, but also in an, another factor, which was model parliament mm -hmm. back at Carlton. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you were involved for about two years or so in, in model, model Parliament. For mm -hmm. our audience members that don't know what it is, could you explain to them what is Model Parliament and what you exactly do in Model Parliament? Sure. Model Parliament is, is, uh, is, is basically a, a, a mock-up of sort of, uh, you know, our, our governmental uh, institution, basically. You know, we, we form... Uh, make believe parties, and then we sit in parliament and we try to legislate, basically. And uh, and so it's really it, it really is a very interesting and unique experience because you can form a party based on whatever ideology you like, and uh, you know you can then you know go into parliament and and try and pursue your agenda and 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 and, and discover how you know through parliamentary mechanisms parties' agendas can succeed or fail. Uh, based on the usage of parliamentary mechanisms and uh, and the need to keep your own party together to gain support from opposing parties who have different agendas to create compromises and, and I think so in, in that sense it was a very positive I, I, I think uh, view of, of what parliament could be and we saw the negatives as well but I think we saw also the positives of how you know through working in model parliament, we tried to create compromise, we tried to create agendas that could 
pass with broad consensus and uh, and and yeah and so I, I think that it, it really you you go through all the aspects of sort of parliamentary procedure and model parliaments based with a party that you know you've sort of created yourself or one that you've joined from one of your friends or what have you and with your experience in model parliament combined with your student government experience at Carleton as well, this provides for essentially a trial by fire when it comes to advocacy, public advocacy. Oh, right, yes, yeah. You're so right. how did that trial by fire prepare you for Harvard? You know, I, I think it's uh, one of the main ways that it prepared me was I, I think in terms of the Socratic method, uh, in terms of the idea of people call, calling on you uh, for questions during class and, and, you know, being able to quickly come up with a response and come up with a, a strong response to that. I, I think as well, you know, it, it also, I think, drove my interest in, in what aspects of the legal profession I, I wanted to pursue, like going into a more litigation-oriented path as opposed to a transactional-oriented path, uh, which for big globalists, one of the big choices you have to make is, is litigation and transactional. And certainly, you know, it, it was... Uh, you know, and I, I think certainly a, a a big factor in why I chose to to, to go into litigation. I, I think also just really, I, I think, as I said earlier, my, my finding that I enjoyed those things was, I think, a big factor in, in my choosing to go to law And uh, and I think just it, it really had impacts like just just across the board, but sometimes more intangible than maybe I described. But I think really in terms of you know, your ability to articulate a point, discuss things and, and, and what have you, you, you know, it, it is really amplified. And your ability, I think, as well to withstand pressure, to withstand uh, working relationships with people, I, I think actually can really be helped by stuff like student government model parliament. And, uh, and, and certainly a lot of the interpersonal skills I learned, well, particularly not so much model parliament, but from student government, I'd say I learned a lot of interpersonal skills. And, and those have served me well, you know you know, school and, and in working life. And those are important experiences as you were considering where you wanted to go to law school. Mm-hmm. You were considering, if I remember correctly from the, our, our personal conversations mm-hmm. five years ago, mm-hmm. you were deciding between Canada, the US and the UK. Mm-hmm. Yes. What attracted you to these three countries and mm-hmm. why did you choose Harvard mm-hmm. as your final choice? Well, I was born in London, and so uh, a British citizen as well as a Canadian citizen, and so the UK was obviously, I, I think, uh, an option, and it's always been an option. I, I think uh, the UK, I I stopped considering relatively quickly because just of the differences in the system, basically, the fact that I already done an undergraduate degree, uh, like integrating back into that system, I think would have been more challenging than it needed to be for me. I, 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 think, uh, I, I think there's very good opportunities in the UK, certainly. Uh, Oxford now, I believe, like has a standardized test, if I remember correctly, the LNAT, which is sort of like a better version of the LSAT, probably because more writing-oriented, what have you. But uh, I didn't want to do write another standardized test. Uh, you know, the, the process was a little bit more complicated for me coming from North America to really go back to that system. And, uh, and, and so I think I relatively quickly discarded that option. Uh, and, and so it really came down to Canada and the U.S., uh, and, and, which both had systems that I was familiar with and, and could easily integrate into. And, and uh, you know, it was, I, I think, uh, in Canada, you know, and yeah, really, I was, I was really debating between Canada and, and the U.S. And 
you know, I, I think the, the, the factors that went into that decision were sort of, uh, you know, I think really I had an interest in international law. And I think that was the tiebreaker, I think, in terms of taking me to the United States was, was sort of, uh, you know, I, I felt that Harvard Law School would give me more opportunities, particularly for international commercial practice. Uh, which is essentially what international arbitration is and what have you. And, and international, we have international white collars, well, and what have you. And so, but I mean, it's international commercial practice, international business practice, which is what I had grown familiar with at Carlton. Uh, as, as you know from my publications, uh, I'd grown familiar with sustainable, but at the end of the day, international commercial practice and, and doing that in, in, a, in a way that you know, withstands crises like coronavirus, for instance. But, uh, you know, having worked with, you know, oil and gas mining companies and seen sort of the considerations they had in this evolving world that we have and, and uh, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the impact that global markets have on those commodities, whether it be, you know, how they manage investments in, in, in you know, foreign countries. And, uh, and and the kinds of provisions they have to put in place to do that, and uh, the kinds of considerations they have to put in place before they invest in a foreign country. Uh, and as well, you know, I, I think that uh, just having an interest in, in that sort of practice, I, I think, led me to the United States in part because I felt there was there was more opportunities at, at U.S. law firms to have that kind of practice. Uh, and you know, not just internationally, but even domestically as well, like domestic commercial disputes as well, which which are important foundations for international commercial disputes. But uh, you know, it, it's uh, I, I sort of felt that you know having that international law interest and, and what have you basically was was I think really what pushed me to, to the United States uh, over Canada, uh, and and so and yeah, I think as well other considerations were sort of. You know, I, I think you, you've got to, like, get a feel for each school as well. But I, I think the biggest thing, though, is at the end of the day, with law school, it's a, it's a, it's a vocational training at the end of the day. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with viewing it as such. I think some people like to view it as an academic vocation. I think there's better ways of going about an academic vocation than going to law school. And that, that's certainly... Something that I would say is, is, is that, you know, if you're interested in sort of like the philosophy of law or what have you, there's better degrees to pursue and there's, there's other opportunities out there that will, 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 will scratch that itch, basically. Whereas, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I think you need to, I think, approach law school with, with a clear vision in mind and sort of what kind of work you'd like to do after. And you don't always get the work you like after going to law school. Uh, so you should have a few options in mind. You should have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, because, you know, particularly in coronavirus times, like uh, I think a lot of people's career aspirations have been, have been, have been messed up, frankly. Have been, you know, they, they were intending to do something and, and, and that something may no longer be available. Uh, and, and so in that sense, like, particularly in times like this, you've got to be flexible, but you've got to have a clear idea as well as the kind of direction you want to take things in. One thing that I will say is that a lot of people dream about going to Harvard Law. Mm -hmm. I mean, from young and old, mm -hmm. regardless of background, regardless of country even, mm -hmm. a lot of people dream mm -hmm. about going to Harvard. 
Absolutely. or anything really, let alone Harvard Law or Harvard Med School. You had that dream fulfilled. Take us through that first moment walking into those halls and through the same places that former U.S. presidents have walked mm-hmm. through. What was it like? How did it feel like? Yeah, funnily enough, we also have had Canadian prime, well, well, not Canadian prime ministers, but Canadian politicians who walked through there. I remember Robert Stanfield actually was the first Canadian editor of the Harvard Law Review. And we've had like politicians in many countries actually walk through the Asian countries as well and, and uh, European countries. And, and uh, you know, it really is, uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, I, I met particularly from the Harvard LLM program, people from so many different countries. And you're quite right for many people from many different you know, and, and the LLM program was, was one of the most impressive things about Harvard Law School, you know, it was, you know, and I think entering there was sort of like the, the first impression that you have is, is sort of that it is an incredibly well-resourced Harvard Law School. And I think in that sense, there's few places that could rival that kind of, the kinds of resources that Harvard Law School has. And just, it has a certain purchase power, a certain what have you, it's an endowment power that even other top law schools can't really come close to matching. And, and so, you know, from the buildings, from the law library, from, you know, everything about the infrastructure of the institution, you know, is, it is very clear this is across the board, not just the law school, but the undergrads were incredibly well-resourced place. Uh, and so that was something that always stuck with me, like whenever I was writing papers or doing research assignments, is that everything was at the fingertips of the Harvard And, and uh, like anything from the most obscure sources you could imagine you could get at a Harvard library. That's one of these that really strikes you when you're there. Uh, in terms of, you know, and, and yeah, you know, in terms of the student body, you know, articulate, you know, well-rounded, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, tell they, 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 they're careful to sort of curate you know what the student was like with the LLM class you have some incredible people from from across the world really people who've already made massive differences in their own countries who you know are as much people you can learn from as people who are there to learn and you know we had once I think we've had Supreme Court judges from African states you know who've really been involved in some of the most challenging jurisprudence you could imagine we've had and we've, we've had lawyers, established lawyers from Europe, from Asia, from Latin America, a huge amount from Latin America. And, uh, you know, it really, it, it's, uh, and so really to have that kind of community of people who, who you can speak to, and, and also in the JD program as well, you know, people who've, who've had years of work experience, you know, often in, in the U.S. capital and, and U.S. finance and U.S. consulting, that sort of network that you can build there and and sort of the uh you know the experiences that people can share with you is is one of the things that really you you have an impression of basically and uh and so it's intimidating certainly and, and you know certainly a lot of people do have imposter syndrome there as well and, and what have you and uh you know but i think as well it, it's just an incredible opportunity I, I i think to really figure out how you fit in and to really share with those people, you know, the experiences they've had and learn from, learn from each other as much as learning from the, the professors. The professors are, you know, again, famous professors. And, and uh, 
And, you know, certainly I, I found some of them who really were involved in, in politics and, and what have you in, in ways I figured were, were very important. I, I had a professor who was involved in, in campaign finance reform in the U.S., which I think is, is incredibly important. And he really had really pioneered ideas in that regard. And so, you know, just I, I think the, the level of qualification that people have, you know, I think it really sticks with you. And that's certainly a, a factor of not just Harvard Law, but a lot of really good, well-resourced law schools. That's such an important element to have. Law mm-hmm. is a practical yes. field at the end of the mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. So to have all these experiences, and in your case, a lot of very interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not just your colleagues who have made a lot of changes in right. their respective countries. You've also made a lot of change, societal change mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Early on with your research, mm-hmm. in two mm-hmm. ways. One way is well, your research time with Professor Steinitz, mm-hmm. and your your research in particularly with litigation in at the, in or at the uh, the New York Senate. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is your publications, especially that book chapter in designing a sustainable financial system, development goals, and socio ecological responsibility. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I want to get to that work with the New York Senate. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in that? And did you ever get a chance to present your findings directly at the New York Senate? Well, I assisted the professor, actually, Professor Steinitz, who gave fantastic testimony uh, to the New York State Senate regarding an issue that certainly is, is very pressing in the legal field, uh, particularly in the international legal field, particularly in international arbitration, but increasingly in domestic litigation. And also more so, I'd say, in Commonwealth countries, in Canada and the UK. Litigation finance, uh, it plays a bigger role. You talk about the, the Burford Capital or Benthamine, what happened basically. Those financiers are already playing a bigger role, I'd say, in, in, in Commonwealth litigation than they are necessarily in the US, where uh, there's the certain legal doctrines that continue to restrict uh, the, the role that, uh, that, that litigation financiers can play in the US courts. But it is quickly fading those the, the, those those restrictions, and you know the New York Senate was was coming to realize that that you know there was a, a need to have a better system of regulation as opposed to simply banning litigation fines. There was a need for a, a smarter system of regulation that recognized both the benefits and the potential pitfalls of litigation finance. And uh, and really, you know, litigation finance is is a way you know for particularly plaintiffs uh, who have meritorious cases but don't necessarily have the financial wherewithal to pursue those cases to uh, get various means of financing uh, that are appropriate for their case to then proceed to, uh, uh, then proceed to, 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 you know, take their case to the court system. And certainly, you know, it's a... And, and there's access to justice uh, considerations, which, 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 which litigation finance can help with. Uh, there's also fears that litigation finance will influence the way cases are done in, in ways that, uh, that would be problematic, uh, that, that, that it may lead to traditional fears that litigation finance will lead to over-litigiousness. The idea that you're, you're getting paid to create a problem in the court system. Uh, and, and so... You know, I, I think it's it's a, it's a complex issue how you how you balance those two things, and 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 sort of that was sort of what we were what we were trying to grapple with is, is how do you allow for that 
access to justice benefit for people who have a case already, they're not just trying to create trouble. They have a meritorious case and they can't pay for it, so litigation fines should be there for them. But how do you also ensure that they're not just telling people to go do a lawsuit, what have you? And I think that, you know, litigation fines are a lot more sophisticated than people think it is. Uh, I, I think that the kinds of behavior that they think is happening it's probably not happening in the way that a lot of the traditionalists think it's happening, in my personal opinion. Uh, I think it's, it, a lot of this uh, dislike of litigation fines comes from traditional dislike of lawyering and traditional dislike of the court system. But I think that you know to have that traditional dislike of it, uh, I think we've crossed a bridge now where we are a more litigious society anyway. And, and so the issue is who gets access to that? Is it just the people who have the money to get access to that, or is it, you know, everybody has access to what is now our dispute resolution mechanism, one of the primary dispute resolution mechanisms in society. And particularly in the international arbitration context as well, you're seeing a huge amount of activity with the litigation financing now. And so these companies are growing, they're growing rapidly. Uh, there is certainly actually, I think, speculation as well, which, which I, I think is somewhat credible that these could continue to grow in light of the coronavirus pandemic, because there's going to be more claims, uh, I think, that people don't have money to bring, but who need, which need legal settlement. And, and, and so I, I think this, this is absolutely a field that's going to be growing, and I think it's already there in, in Canada and the UK, and it's coming to the US. Yeah, this problem has already been, uh, been here f before the pandemic way right. before the pandemic this has been mm -hmm. an issue for decades mm -hmm. before Absolutely. even even the, the the most recent global recession in 2009 not counting mm -hmm. the pandemic imposed mm -hmm. recession of course mm -hmm. this has been an international problem mm -hmm. an international domestic problem to be mm -hmm. specific every country has had well every country that has a working legal system that's a that's a fair and just system mm -hmm has this problem. Canada has mm -hmm. this problem as well. We have our fair share of access to justice. Mm -hmm. Australia also has a similar problem with this as well, specifically in regards to indigenous peoples mm -hmm. in Australia, similar here in Canada as well. So there are so many parallels in, these, in our legal systems, regardless mm -hmm. of our countries, mm -hmm. that really bring into perspective a lot of the complexities of this of not just the systems but also people's attitudes towards it i mentioned this on previous episodes in in this in this podcast there there's there's a need for lawyers there, there's mm -hmm. certainly a need for lawyers but mm -hmm. the access to justice is such an important factor in terms mm -hmm. of it and mm -hmm. the perception of us we have a duty mm -hmm. we have a duty we, mm -hmm. we 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 offer a service right. to our clients mm -hmm no matter who our clients are. So as lawyers and legal professionals, we must remember that as mm -hmm. we're going forward with our work in mm -hmm. any capacity, even if we're not practicing law, mm -hmm. we must remember that. We have a privilege mm -hmm. of being trained in this field mm -hmm. and we must not squander mm -hmm. that privilege at all. And we must, I, I think, make contributions to the field that are increasing that access to justice. Uh, and, and that means, I, I think, pushing past prejudices that we may have, pushing past, uh, you know, the guild mentality that has sometimes been the case with lawyers. And I, I think as well, you know, 
recognizing all the opportunities that do exist now for improvements to access to justice. But also, I, I think, you know, we do play an important role as well in terms of protecting the public, you know. And, and this comes back to the earlier conversation we had about certain law schools, which, you know, made certain promises that they couldn't fulfill in terms of improving people's lives and improving access to the legal profession, which they did not fulfill. And, you know, we certainly have a role to not just say anybody who comes up with any kind of idea get in there and we'll support you kind of thing because some ideas have unintended consequences and will cause more harm than good and will disillusion people with the whole system. And I think that some of those American law schools that, you know, when we're doing those things, disillusioning people with the whole system to some extent. And, you know, and so I think we, we have a role to be responsible gatekeepers, I, I think, to understand what the unintended consequences of things could be, but also not to stand in the way of the progress, absolutely. I think too often the legal profession as well has, has, has used its role as, as a gatekeeper to therefore stand in the way of innovations that exist particularly in this day and age to improve access to justice. Whereas in reality, I think like I was saying, we've got to find a way to smartly regulate those innovations and, and, and manage the downside consequences while still ensuring absolutely, because there's a huge issue with access to justice. I, I, I think, you know, the idea that corporations and, and then the big players have more access to the courts for their disputes because they can fund their disputes and more than, than people who, who, who are lower on the socioeconomic back, particularly the middle class. And I think that's one thing that we sort of have to discuss as well is if you're very poor, there are, let's not say there's a very good access for the poor, but there, there are services that do exist for the poor, you know, in terms of legal aid, in terms of certain pro bono work and what have you, so to speak. But if you're talking, let's say, about a small business owner, uh, a middle-class individual who has a, a meritorious legal claim, uh, it's there's often not a lot of competent representation that those people can find at an affordable price, and 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 so I think we've got to speak as well to to the extent that you know, a court system that's not just, that's serving, you know, the, the broad bulk of society that, that everyone has access to and is using in, in ways that is, uh, that is that is advantageous to them and that allows for the fair adjudication of their disputes. I think we've lost that a bit in, in the court system in, in recent years. I think if you go back it's going to be 40, 50 years, there was more accessibility, I, I think, of, of the court system, uh, you know, at least for middle class people and what have you, so to speak. And I, I think now, you know, we, we have to, I think, find ways of ensuring this condo legal representation that's given to small businesses, that's given to the middle class people, it's given to, you know, all, all sorts of things. And, and, and so, you know, and I think there's ways of doing that, like litigation fines, for instance, or whatever. It's just about smartly regulating that and, and about ensuring the legal profession is not just trying to keep without, without really focusing on access to justice. Exactly. And COVID-19 has actually forced a lot of progress to be mm -hmm. made in yes. the way how not only we practice law, mm -hmm. but how the system is being run. Right. Here in Ottawa, well, I say here in Ottawa, despite mm -hmm. the fact that, that mm -hmm. I'm recording this from Mississauga, <laughs> in Ottawa, I know for, for a fact that in the Ottawa Citizen that the, the Ottawa courthouse has been processing bail provisions mm -hmm. right. online now right they've been doing that since the COVID-19 pandemic and many lawyers have been saying that this is 
a progress point that is Absolutely. that has been greatly needed for mm-hmm. so many years. Yes. And I agree too, because right. having been having back when I was still at Carlton, we had mm-hmm. a course called Criminal Justice System. Right. And one of my assignments was to go to the courthouse, sit mm-hmm. in on a court proceeding, and just observe how they process bail, how they process accused individuals, how they process mm-hmm. mental health courts, drug treatment courts, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, I saw three cases where they had to adjourn it. In two of those cases, they had to adjourn it for a third time. And I went there in January, so it was in the middle of dead winter, and Ottawa has a particularly bad winter for Ontario standards, southern Ontario standards. And the reason why they adjourned it was because those people, those accused individuals, I should be more specific, those accused individuals were being driven from a facility in in Cornwall on an hour drive on regular normal good traffic on Mm -hmm. clean highways towards Mm -hmm. Ottawa to be Mm -hmm. processed for bail. Now, even in the summer, that is ridiculous. Why, why, why would you, that's pathetically bad. Why would you use that system at all? Let alone in the middle of winter. Right. Right. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. the thing was, they adjourned it because they couldn't even get the car out. They couldn't even get get the get the truck out. I'm just sitting here thinking, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what seriously? It's archaic. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's unnecessarily archaic. And, exactly. And that's what I was getting at. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, nowadays, nowadays, literally nowadays, as in this year alone, mm-hmm. finally that court has moved on to a system where that. Person that accused individual, that person can sit in his or her cell mm-hmm. and have his or her bail proceeding right. processed without any delays. Mm-hmm. Now, adjournments are almost unheard of. There may be a mm-hmm. couple, maybe mm-hmm. on other procedural factors right. that I may right. not know of, but right. now it's possible to, pr- to, to process a lot more in a much right. more timely fashion and right. most importantly to clear up the backlog. Right. And yeah. I'm just thinking. We should have had this change implemented 10 years ago. Absolutely. I mean, you go to Norway, yeah. they now even process international cases right. over Skype. Right. There's, uh, for our listeners and, and, and viewers, if you, if you, uh, if you look online, we, there's, a repair, there's a computer repairman named Louis Rossman who was actually giving his testimony from Manhattan, New York mm-hmm. to right. a Norway court regarding Apple parts, refurbished uh, right. Apple parts. Mm-hmm. And if Norway can do that on a regular basis, why can't mm-hmm. Canada do that? Right. right? So, and I'm just. And happy I guess the fear with stuff like that was always, you know, the idea of people testifying not on the stand is, is the idea that you couldn't interact with someone on the stand, basically. And you know, the lawyer would have less of an ability to sort of appropriately, you know, not only seeing that that truthfulness in the direct examination, but seeing also appropriately that they could cross-examine the person and that a jury or the judge or whoever the fact finder is could see their demeanor and and sort of like and, and what have you and 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 so that that's an interesting it's an interesting dilemma to me i i think that certainly you know there's you know we're seeing a lot of that now 
is necessary that we that we have virtual testimony. Uh, but you know, I, I think there's pros and cons to that. I, I think it's working better than people thought. Would work, I, I would say, uh, in the sense that you know we have more detailed online platforms now. But you know, certainly we also uh, we have. Uh, but certainly we also. I think there's there's something to be said for the idea of you know having someone on the staff. And I, I think also like really discerning what kinds of witnesses maybe that you could have virtually so that it's not as much of a burden on everyone to do that, but also perhaps discerning as well the kinds of witnesses that maybe you do need to understand, uh, particularly the types of witnesses for whom there may be questions of credibility and what have you, so to speak, and, and the fact finder may need to see them in person. And so I, I particularly have thought about as long as I did trial advocacy workshop, I've, I've been involved in trial work. And, uh, and and so these are definitely considerations in play. And and there's a certain if you talk to litigators, you know, they often find that think there's a certain sacrosanct nature to the trial system. And the other thing that we should bear in mind as well with all this is the difference between common and civil law systems. And, and there are innovations in civil law systems which uh, which, uh, you know, may not be as appropriate in common law systems and vice versa. Uh, and so I, I think Norway might be a civil law system. And so with that being said, you know, the way in which they cross-examine witnesses and what have you, basically, would be different than in a common law system. And, and so, you know, the, the, that's certainly another factor that's in play. But, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, this pandemic has created the kinds of changes that people would only have dreamt of in a profession that is as traditional as the legal profession because it's been forced on everyone. And, you know, it, it really has, and I think it's, it's, I think overall it's a very positive thing as, as you're saying, because I, I think that we now have an experimental time that we can look back to and, and see what worked well, what didn't work well, but we took the opportunity to try things which we refused to try for a very long time. And now we can see, you know, what's working well, what needs to be tinkered with. But I think that hopefully we'll be coming out of this with a, a much more sophisticated and modern legal profession. Hello again, Amos Vang here. This concludes the first part of my conversation with Royce Gupta. Stay tuned for part two on our website, thelawschoolshow.com, on Twitter and Instagram at lawschoolshow, and on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.